If you will, go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 19. We are going to continue this Lord's Day through our study of Matthew's Gospel. I'm so glad that you are with us. What a wonderful day we've had thus far, and I pray it will continue to be so. Uh, as you turn there, I want to ask you to consider this morning why it is you are here. And for some of us, we're here because someone invited us. For others, we're here because this is what we do. We, we come to church on Sunday. And sadly, sometimes when we come out of pattern, we don't really come expectantly. We just kind of come to, to get through it and move on to the next thing. I was at a conference this week with thousands of pastors, and uh, I sat through about seven one-hour sermons. So I know what it is to sit where you're sitting I don't just say this because I'm up here, and I know in my own heart that it's easy to kind of sit and listen and kind of go off into other places. And it's also possible for us to ask God to, to allow us to, to understand and listen to what it is He has to say to us. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would hear from God. Uh, you're not here to hear me. Uh, I don't even like listening to myself. <laughs> But, but my prayer is that God would speak to you. The God who created the universe is the God who has spoken to us through his word. And I say all that because today's text is a very difficult one. Uh, it's a text that many times pastors will just jump right past. It deals with a very sensitive issue, an issue that affects all of us in some way, shape, or form, as Jesus talks about divorce and marriage. Uh, it's an issue that probably more than any other in Scripture we often come to with our own preconceived ideas and notions. And as long as God says something we agree with, we're fine. And if He says something we don't agree with, well, we just don't pay attention to it. But my prayer is that we would pay attention to this today and that God might speak to us through His Word. So let me read it to us and then pray for our time this Lord's Day. This is what... Our sovereign God says to us as he speaks to Matthew through the Holy Spirit about his encounters with Jesus and he writes down what he encountered. He says this. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this 
receive it. If you'll join with me in prayer. Father God, I pray that we would receive this today. As Jesus instructs the disciples, the one who is able to receive it, let him receive it. Lord, I pray that we would. Father, what is spoken in this text to us this morning is the exact opposite of what is spoken through our culture, of what is spoken oftentimes by other believers, other pastors, Christian counselors. Father, this is a hard, hard text. And that's why the disciples respond to it by saying, who, who can accept this? Father, I pray that we would. I pray that you would speak to us. I pray, God, that your spirit would, would, would help us to focus and attend to these words. And Father, I pray as we do, knowing that there are people in this room who have experienced the, the agony and pain of divorce, there are people in this room who have experienced that as a, as a child in their home, as their parents divorced. There, there's no one here this morning to celebrate that. And Lord, we're also not here this morning to, to condemn anyone. Father, we're here to hear from your word, and I pray that we would experience the grace and forgiveness and mercy as well as the admonition and rebuke that it offers us. I pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. One of the most difficult things as a minister is sitting down and doing counseling with couples who are having serious marital conflict. Um, I don't refer to myself as a marriage counselor. I feel like I'm more of a, a pre-divorce counselor because oftentimes by the time a couple makes it to the pastor's office that they are 99% of the way on their way to the courthouse, on their way to the attorney's office. They Often, in fact, no one has ever come to me and said, well, well, things were just going so well in our marriage, we just came in for a checkup. Uh, we, we, just, we just came in to make sure everything's good. No, oftentimes when they come in, it's just carcasses. It, it, the bomb's gone off, and everything's in disarray, and it's almost this obligation to check in on the way out and and so i i've seen firsthand that the pain that divorce brings to to more families than i want to count and oftentimes in those appointments i found myself wondering lord what would it be like if i were able to go into this family's life 5 10 15 20 years ago not that i have wisdom to share but but to share from your word what it says what what would it be like to to be on the proactive end of this instead of the reactive end of this when god's providence and grace that's what we have today now some of you i understand may be struggling in your marriages some of you may be struggling in a divorce right now but for others of you things may be going fine but all of us need to hear from this some of you are young and you're at an age where the thought of marriage is so far off that the, the, the thought of dating might even be far off. You need to hear from this today. Because God's Word presents to us a radically different perspective about marriage than our world offers us. And yet you will find in the pulpit, you will find in the Christian bookstore, and you will surely find within our secular world the exact opposite advice, the exact opposite teaching of what we see in the text today. 
My prayers is that we look at this, that God would give us grace to understand it, to see there's a a very clear difference between man's plan for marriage and and God's plan for marriage. What what did he intend this to be in the first place? First, we're going to look at this question that comes up. We're going to look at this this notion that, that, that man has their own understanding and their own plan. And as we do... First thing that I place in your notes there is that, that man's plan for marriage we see is a very self-centered plan. Notice here it says Jesus has finished these sayings and he's going away from Galilee and as he's going there's crowds following him. They're, they're all following him for different reasons. There's some that are there because they just want something from Jesus. They want to be healed by Jesus. They want Jesus to bless them. Some of you, that, that's why you're here. You, you just want something. There's others we know that are there because they they want to learn from Jesus. There's the disciples who are following Him. They want to learn from Him. Some of you, that's why you're here this morning. There's another group, however, that Jesus mentions, the Pharisees. And we see that they are there to test Jesus. They are skeptics. They are unbelievers. And and we draw those as well in the church. People who come and they come just wanting to pick everything apart. They are skeptical. They don't believe these things. Perhaps some of you are in that category as well. These skeptics, these Pharisees, they come to Jesus not because they don't believe in God, because they don't believe He is from God. And so the text tells us, verse 3, that they're seeking to test Him. Now, this is not a test like you take in school. This is not a pass-fail test. They're, They're trying to corner Jesus. I think they're really trying to get him to side with one particular group of them. You see, in Jesus' day, there were different teachings among the rabbis about divorce. And so, I think what the Pharisees are doing here is they're trying to get Jesus to choose one of those sides. I don't think they're just trying to get Jesus to step on toes. He's already stepped on a lot of toes. He's already taught about marriage and divorce. He's already done those things. But I think instead, some of them are wanting Jesus to affirm what it is they believe. We do the same thing in the church today. We come to the Word of God. We come to the church with these notions of here's what I believe about this. Here's what I believe about this. Here's what I believe about this. Now show me in the Bible where it says those things. And rather, we should come to the Word of God understanding that it may say something radically different than what we believe. And our beliefs what needs to change, not our understanding of God's Word. And so they, they do this, they come to Jesus wanting Him to side with them. Well, what are the sides? Well, there were primarily three understandings of marriage and divorce among the rabbis at this time. There was a, a rather small group who basically said divorce is never permitted for any reason. That it doesn't matter, you can't get divorced. That, that was a small group. And then there were two groups outside of that that were larger One taught that divorce was permissible, but in very isolated situations. If there's been unfaithfulness, there can be divorce, is essentially what that came down to. And then yet another group, uh, one that we could probably even see in our culture today, they essentially affirmed what it is the disciples or the Pharisees ask about, that they believe that divorce could happen for any reason. Now, in this context, in this culture, you didn't have women going to get divorces. You had men issuing the divorce, men asking for the divorce. This, that's the way the culture was, the society was. And so a man, if he found anything unpleasing in his wife, he could divorce her. And that would go so far as some historical records tell us that if she did not cook a meal that he liked, if she didn't cook it right, if she burned it, he could divorce her. I was talking to... 
Sandy about that. We were talking, and I was talking about how only the man could get the divorce, and she said, well, maybe some of those meals were cooked bad on purpose. <laughs> so, husbands, beware the burnt toast. There was this teaching that it didn't matter. If you just got tired of a person, you could divorce them. You could go get someone new. And, and we see that, that teaching today, not only kind of under the surface in our culture, but you go into some Far Eastern cultures and you see that. I've, I've been to areas of West Africa where essentially a man at any given time could just say to his wife, you don't satisfy me anymore. I, I want something different. And he could come up with a whole list of reasons. And then just dispose of her and get another wife. And while we may snub our noses at that, are, are we all that different in our culture today? Divorce is rampant. You can't turn on the radio without hearing an advertisement for a divorce attorney. You can't pick up a phone book without seeing an advertisement. You can't drive down the interstate without seeing it. Why? Because it's a big business. And so Jesus has asked this question in the context of his day that really... It's not so different than the context of our day. The Pharisees are saying, can someone divorce for just any reason? They, they want Jesus to affirm one side or the other. But notice the entire context of the question is focused on man. It's not focused on God. And as we'll look in a moment, Jesus' answer points them back towards that. He points them back towards creation. But what we often see in our own lives is this same notion that Marriage, divorce, these aren't really questions about what God's Word says. They're more questions about how we feel. The problem is our feelings change. The problem is, according to the Scripture, we don't really even know how we feel. The Scripture tells us in Jeremiah 17 that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And that's why you'll find yourself in situations sometimes where you're, you're past it, you're over here, and you're looking back and you're saying, well, why did I even do that? Why did I even say that? Man, I wish I could go back. Why, why does that happen? Because we don't even understand our own heart. Our, our heart changes. Our heart will deceive us. And it's not just that our feelings change. People change. By God's grace, people change. I was watching an interview with one couple who had been married for either five or six decades. And I remember the wife uh, was saying concerning these things, she said, well, I've been married to five different men, and they're all sitting right here beside me. <laughs> I mean, she was testifying that, that we change over time. And so this notion that, well, well my marriage is, is okay as long as you don't change, but I can't tell you the number of times I've heard people say, well, this isn't the person I married. And they almost said, well, that's not the person I married either. Friends, let me tell you, especially for those of you who are young, who are, who are not there yet, that the person you marry is not the person you'll be married to a decade, two decades, three decades later. By God's grace, they won't be the same person. Scripture says, Apostle Paul says, when I was a child, I reasoned like a child, I thought like a child, I acted like a child. When I became a man, I put away my childish things. In the faith, we're supposed to grow, we're supposed to mature, and as it happens, our interests change, things change about us. Our, our marriage covenant is not based in how I feel about the person or, or who they exist to be. Our marriage covenant has to be based in something bigger. But if we follow man's plan, it'll be based on something very small and it will not last. And that's what Jesus then tells 
the people as he points away from man's plan and he points towards something greater, God's plan. And as he does, he shows us that God's plan for marriage is a a gospel-centered plan. Notice where he takes them. He doesn't say, well, some of your rabbis teach this. Let me tell you what I think about that. He doesn't say, well, this perspective says this. Let me tell you what I think about that. He says, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Friends, so many times in our life, that's exactly where we need to go. If you don't understand what happened in Genesis 2 and 3, nothing else makes sense. And so Jesus takes the Pharisees, he takes his disciples all the way back to Genesis 2. And he shows them how in Genesis 2, in creation, God created man and woman, and it was good. And he points them towards Genesis 2.24. Therefore man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus presents a one flesh union as God's plan. Now notice what he says here. He says they're going to leave their father and their mother. Obviously, he's talking about beyond Adam and Eve. Who who was Eve's mother? Who was Adam's mother? God speaks them into being. He's not just talking about them. He's saying, here's my plan for what this does look like. They're they're to leave their parents and come together. Oftentimes, we quote this verse in the context of, well, you know, it's really not a good idea to live so close to your in-laws. It's usually not a good idea to live close to your in-laws, but not because of what this text says. This text is not saying how far you live apart. In fact, in the culture of this day, people lived right there by each other. They lived in compounds together, maybe even shared a house together. God's not saying move out of that house. No, what is He saying? He's saying that, listen, you and you are two people, and in marriage, you're going to become one person. And so it's not about what mama says, or daddy says, or mother-in-law says, or father-in-law says, or cousin, aunt, grandma, whoever. You're one. It's a one flesh union. That's what God's design is. But notice what happens as soon as God puts this in place. Where is the very first place you see the enemy attack? You see the enemy, Satan, come into the garden. What's the first thing he goes after? This. And within a few verses, he turns this into this. You see Adam and Eve fall and succumb and sin. And as soon as they do, you see its effects on that marriage covenant. God comes in and he basically calls them into account. And he says, who told you to do this? And what does Adam say? She did. This becomes this. And Jesus is speaking in a context then, and He is speaking to us in a context now where we we come into marriage like this, we're we're excited, everything looks good, but pretty soon, every single time. And in order for this to work, we need to understand and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why as you follow through Genesis... You see a one flesh union. You see man and woman going at each other when sin enters the picture. And what does God then say to them? He says, listen, redemption is coming. Within a few verses, he points towards the cross. He tells, the, he tells Eve, from you is going to come one who's going to crush the head of the enemy. What is God doing there? He, he is giving them hope. 
He's telling them about redemption. He's telling them, something's going to change this. You're going to be at it. But I'm still calling you to a covenant. But this covenant is only possible in the grace and the mercy and in faith and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so then you have Jesus standing before these Pharisees who are essentially wanting Him to give them permission to do what they're doing or to side with them. And what does He say? He says, go back to the beginning This is what it was. This was the intention. This is what happens. But a Redeemer will come and I am that Redeemer and I am here now. I don't think it's any coincidence that Matthew 19 comes after Matthew 18. I'm not just talking about the numbers. If you've been with us, you know as we went through Matthew 18, Matthew 18 begins with the disciples arguing over who's the greatest. Jesus talks talks to them about the kingdom, and as He's talking to them about the kingdom, He talks about how we deal with sin, and as He talks about how we deal with sin, He talks about going after a lost sheep, He talks about the heart of God. And, And where does Matthew 18 end? It ends with a teaching about forgiveness. And then Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, then right after that teaching on forgiveness, goes into Jesus' teaching on marriage. And why does He do that? Because if you're going to stay like this, you better understand what it means to forgive. Go back to Matthew 18. We looked at this last week, but let me, let me read this to you. I'm going to change the wording just a little bit. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Change it. Peter comes up and says to him, Lord... How often will my wife sin against me and I forgive her? Peter's wife's right there. She looks at him. Lord, how often will my husband sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? You know, from last week we talked about the context of that. The rabbis taught you should forgive three times but not four. Peter thinks he's being exceedingly righteous by saying seven times. What does Jesus say? I say to you seven times seventy. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that when you're married, you get a barometer with 491 at the top of it. And you hang it in your kitchen, and you just start marking that thing off. And as soon as I get to 491, you're out. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, you forgive as I have forgiven you. Let me ask you this morning, how many times has God forgiven you? You want to throw out a number of that? Because you can't. I guarantee you, whatever number you come up with, multiply that times 500, and then that one times 500, and that one times 500, and just keep going. You you have sinned, I have sinned more than we can fathom. Jesus didn't just go to the cross because we took a little lie here and there. Jesus went to the cross because at the very essence of who we are, the Scripture says, we are born in sin. And whether you commit, you act out in it or not, just in your minds, just within a few seconds, there's enough sinful stuff that goes through your mind to put Jesus on the cross. You want to try to tackle what that number is? You'll never get there. And so when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, there's no limit to often you forgive. And then Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, right after that, We have this teaching on marriage and divorce. I think the context here, God is trying to tell us something. He's trying to say, listen, if you want to understand what this looks like, you've got to understand forgiveness. 
And if you don't understand forgiveness, then this is all that you're going to have. And you can't do this forever. And that's exactly what we see. And I'm not just talking about out there. I'm talking about in here, in the church today. This is what we see so often. And we can only deal with this for so long. That They push back on that. Jesus takes them back to Genesis, and then they take Jesus over to Deuteronomy. They think they're going to somehow win this battle of Scripture ping-pong with Jesus. doesn't work that way. But they try, verse 7, Well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're thinking, well, we got you now because Moses said, divorce your wives. Go back to what Moses says. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1-4. through Consequences of sin are great in the land. Moses is giving stipulation, laws, regulations. In the midst of that, Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, he's speaking in the context of remarriage. And he's speaking specifically about a situation where if a woman commits, the, the Hebrew word there would essentially mean just a, a grossly egregious act against her husband, and he divorces her. He gives her a certificate of divorce, and then she goes off and marries someone else. If, if then that husband, that second husband, gives her a certificate of divorce, she can't come back to husband number one and marry him. That, that's what Moses is allowing in that text. And there are various interpretations as to what this egregious act is. You get in the Hebrew language, where I, where I fall on that is that Moses is saying that, that she has sinned against him and unfaithfulness before they are even married. In the Hebrew culture, you see this with Joseph and Mary in the beginning of Matthew. When, when a couple were engaged, that was essentially what we call today marriage. And there was an engagement period and that marriage was sealed. But during that, that, that betrothal period, they're, they're treated just like they're married. In fact, in order to break that, that engagement contract, it required divorce. And so where I think Moses is going with this is he's saying that, listen, even before that marriage is finalized, she's been unfaithful to him. And so he can permit her divorce and she can go marry another, but if that marriage then fails and he comes, she comes back, the sin's still the same, the issue's still the same, and no, he can't remarry her. And then notice, so, so that's what they throw at Jesus, notice what he says to them. He essentially says Moses didn't command it. Moses allowed it. Why? Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But again, it goes right back to creation. But from the beginning, it was not so. This isn't what God created it to look like. God did not create and say, well, here's what I want marriage to look like, but you know, sometimes you're going to struggle, and they're going to change, and you're going to feel different ways, so there's all these other things you can work out. No, this is what He calls us to, a one-flesh union. You go over from Genesis to Matthew, Jesus is still saying, this is what He's calling us to. He gives one exception in the text. He says, Moses allowed for this, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. What is Jesus saying there? Well, again, there are varying interpretations of this. But I think when you get into the language, you get into the Greek, you see what words used, what words not used. I think Jesus is pointing to the same thing that Moses was. And I think the reason that it's here in Matthew is fitting. You see, Matthew's the only gospel that talks about Joseph seeking to divorce Mary. The text says specifically, Joseph was a just man. 
It doesn't say Joseph had a hard heart. It said Joseph was a just man. He sought to put her away quietly. Why? Because their marriage had not been sealed yet. Yet again, in that culture, they're essentially married, and so he's got to divorce her. And why would he do it? Because it appears that there's been unfaithfulness. And because going back to what Moses taught, that, that there's, an, there's, a, there's a situation there where divorce is permissible, and I think that's what Jesus is pointing to. And I think in doing that, essentially, Jesus is, is affirming his earthly father, Joseph, was, was a just man. He was, he was doing what he saw to be right, and yet we all know from the Scripture that, that Mary had committed no sin in that regard, and that he did not divorce her. The disciples respond the same way we do. They say, what? Who can do that? Who who can marry one person and say, we're going to go through life like this, and we're going to stay like this, and we're going to be rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who can do that? I think the only people who can do that are those who understand that a gospel-centered marriage is one that requires self-denial and spirit empowerment. And that's where I want to leave us with today. This doesn't come through willpower. This doesn't come through some attitude that, well, I don't care what you do, I'm going to stick this out to the end. I'm not saying that every marriage apart from Christ is bound for divorce. In fact, there are many marriages that continue on and go five, six, seven decades and they stay faithfully committed to one another. But you, in doing that, doesn't mean that it was a gospel-centered marriage. In fact, my fear is that in the church today we have people whose attitude towards what God's plan for marriage is is that, well, God's plan is that no matter how much I don't like that person, I've got to stay with them. Thanks a lot, God. No, God's plan for marriage is something far greater, but it requires us to deny ourselves. It requires us to understand what Jesus teaches. If anyone will come after me, let him deny himself. It's not just a requirement for discipleship. It's a great requirement for marriage. And we can't do it in our own strength. We have to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples are looking at this saying, Man, Who can do this? So here's the disciples in a context where for men, if they didn't like their wives, it was over. And they did that within the confines of the church. It was was sealed by the rabbi. You're good. You're fine. And here's Jesus saying, listen, there's really not any circumstance under which you have to get divorced. And it may be permitted in this one, and the Scripture talks about other things, but listen, you don't have to because you can forgive. And friends, if you're going to have a God-centered, understood, gospel-saturated marriage, it has to be one where you understand forgiveness. And you give forgiveness and you receive forgiveness. One of the most humbling things you will ever experience is is going to your wife or wives to your husband and 
as much as you've got the argument spelled out as to why you believe you are right, confessing that you're wrong and your heart's wrong and you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. Marriage will humble you greatly. And God doesn't end there. Children will humble you even more. Because if you thought you were selfish and realized your selfishness in marriage, those kids come along, you see how selfish you are. And maybe that's the point. See, there's a popular teaching among Christians today that God's desire is for us to be happy. And if He wants us to be happy, then He's going to move things around to make us the happiest. And so when it comes to marriage, as long as, you make, as, long as that marriage makes you happy, then stay in that marriage. But when that marriage doesn't make you happy anymore, well, God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be smiling and dancing and life be good. And if that marriage doesn't make you happy, then, then there are many pastors, Christian counselors will tell you, listen, then you've got an out there because you're not happy and God wants you to be happy and you deserve to be happy. And you open up the pages of Scripture and you do find it talks about what we deserve. But happiness isn't it. See, the Scripture tells us that from that moment in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned, we inherited that sin. And from the time you are born and I am born, we are on a journey, and that journey is a road to hell. We are born hell-bound. And God, in the richness of His grace and mercy, He reaches down and He snatches some of us out of that. And through repentance, He turns us from it, and He calls us to something different. Not because we deserve to be happy. I mean, think, if life, if everything is just about you being happy, why are you sitting here this morning? I, I don't see a lot of smiles. Some of you are sleeping. I mean, this is not the most joyful place to come on Sunday morning. Oh, I, what am I going to do? Well, I need a boost of happiness. I'm going to church this morning. That oh, made me really excited to have a guy get up there with the Bible and yell at me for 30 minutes. Or 40 or 45. If your life was just about your happiness and that all is all you pursue, God help us all. But our life is not about happiness. And yet, in the gospel, we receive more joy than we will ever receive outside of it. Jesus finishes his teaching by saying that a lot of people can't accept this. There are those who have been eunuchs from birth. There are those who made themselves eunuchs. There are those who have become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. We're out of time, so parents, you can explain that one later. So I left it at the end. But what he's essentially saying here is that due to their circumstances, these are people who aren't going to marry. He's saying marriage isn't for everyone. It's a hard, hard thing if you're going to have a gospel-centered marriage. I had a couple come to me not long ago. They literally walked straight in my office. They, they, they made it through Janus somehow, and they just walked straight in, and they, they laid their marriage certificate on my desk, and the very first words were, uh, they told us at the courthouse, you need to sign this. I'd never seen them before in my life. I was a little off guard. I said, who are they? Who are you? What is this? And we started a conversation very quickly. I realized they, they wanted to get married. I asked them when they were thinking about marriage. They, this was actually back in December. It, it was close. I think we were a couple weeks away from Christmas. 
They said, well, we, we just want to get married by Christmas. Oh, okay, all right. Uh, talked to them about, you know, what my understanding of marriage is, that, that anyone can do a wedding, but to have a, a, a gospel-centered, God-focused marriage, it requires great counseling and these things, and they never came back. M- most young people just want a wedding. And that's why most marriages don't last. You might be here this morning and maybe you had a wedding and maybe you have an understanding, but you don't have this. Wherever you're at, whatever you've been through, this morning's text is not about go back in time and fix something. This morning's text is about where you are today. If there is sin that God has revealed, confess and repent. If there's a misunderstanding as to what this looks like, then repent and have faith and begin this today. This morning's text is an understanding that God is a gracious and merciful God who through Christ has redeemed us. But redemption wasn't just to give us a a get-out-of-jail-free card or some sort of fire insurance. Redemption is that we might experience it in all aspects of our life and Jesus tells us if you're going to experience the plan for marriage that God designed, you've got to experience it through a redemptive heart. My prayer is that that is how you and I will experience it this Lord's Day and many more. Let me pray for us. Father, my my response to this text, our response to this text is, for some of us, if we're honest, probably all not, not all that different than the disciples' response. This is hard. Who, who can do this? We're surrounded by people who don't. We might sit here this morning a step away from the steps of the courthouse. Some of us have already been there. Some of us have been there a few times. Who, who can do this? And yet, Father, we know that this and other things are only possible through the cross. They require us dying to ourselves and being made alive in you. And so I pray for any here this morning who has yet to do that, who's yet to repent. The the gospel is not my idea. It's your words to us. And I pray, Lord, that it would go out with power and that it would change lives this morning and that if there's any here who is hellbound in their sin, that you would convict them and they would repent and confess Christ as Lord. There are others here this morning who you have done that with. And Lord, now you are calling them into this church. I'm excited about that. I pray for that. I pray for them. Lord, what an exciting thing it was this morning to see Luke baptized. And Lord, to see in the scripture, Christ in the church is not a picture of marriage. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. There, There are eternal things being taught to us through marriage and through this text. And a lot of them have to do with with your people, your body, this church and other churches. And Lord, I pray you would draw more people to our church. And Lord, as you do those things, I realize that there's some this morning who may need to just right there where they're at, just bow their heads and repent. On the outside, their marriage may look great. On the inside, it is wasting away. Father, I pray for repentance and faith. I pray that you would destroy the pride in their life. I pray that you would help them to see the same enemy in the garden is the enemy at work today to corrode and corrupt the covenant you've called us to. Whatever it is that you're calling us to do, Lord, I pray we would respond in faith this Lord's day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.